If you will, join me please in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, we'll be looking this morning at verses 11 through 14. We continue uh, this morning in our short series called Ordinary. The title of our sermon is Ordinary Growth, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are grace, means, and growth. Now, as we've worked through this series, we've looked at several different aspects of the Christian life that God has called us to. We've begun to realize that we aren't really called to a a sort of hyped-up, radical kind of Christianity, but rather a Christianity that delights itself in some things that are rather mundane. We've admitted along the way that the ordinary Christian life can be a very difficult thing to hold on to because we are constantly bombarded with another kind of message. The message that life needs to be exciting. It needs to be lived on the edge. It needs to be constantly striving for new and better, innovating things. And for many of us, that mindset has crept into the way that we think about the Christian life. But really what we've seen is instead of calling us to the next best best thing, the Bible is actually commanding of us to be content in every circumstance and to be honest about the fact that in this life, it's pretty routine most of the time. The real question is not how can I become a more radical disciple of Jesus. Rather, the question should be, how do we find joy in the midst of the daily grind? How can I be satisfied at the end of my life knowing that I have not wasted it, but I have lived it to the glory of God, even though it is quite ordinary? Uh, last time we looked at Paul's instruction in 1 Thessalonians 4. And maybe for some of us it was a bit of a shock because of the nature of what he's saying. Remember, Paul wrote to the, the church in Thessalonica. He said, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he gives us exhortation that we are to be peaceful, to be calm, to be content, to be unremarkable and really unnoticed in many ways, to be normal, to mind our own business, to not get involved in things that are not our concern, and to work with our hands, take care of ourselves, don't be lazy, don't consider our work to be something beneath us. And we we looked at all of this and we said it all sounds so simple and mundane. And it is. But it's what God requires of us. And so often we're, we're looking outside of these very ordinary things to try and find a command from God for something else because we want an extraordinary experience with God. Now, one of the more common things that I hear from Christians is that they're not growing as believers. They feel like things are sort of stagnant. They're at a standstill in their Christian life. Perhaps I've had that conversation with you. So this morning, I want to look 
at the ordinary way in our ordinary lives that God has prescribed for Christian growth. The question we're going to be asking is, what are the means that God has given us for a lasting, fulfilling communion with him? So we'll begin by looking at Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 14. The writer of Hebrews writes, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now the writer of Hebrews is obviously contrasting two types of people here. Those who are milk drinkers and those who eat solid food will say they're meat eaters when it comes to the things of God. Now the assumption that we can make is that both of these people are Christians and they probably have been for quite some time, but one has has sort of coasted along in everything in the Christian life while they should be like the one who has matured in the Christian faith. And so he rebukes the one who has not grown. He tells them they need milk and not solid food. The illustration's clear. You're a baby in the faith, and yet you shouldn't be a baby. You should be a mature adult. You should be at the point where you're able to teach others, and yet you need someone else to teach you even the most basic things of Scripture. Now, his point is obviously not that everyone should become teachers. We know elsewhere in the Bible that uh, not everyone is called to be a teacher. However, the point that he is making is that their lives should be such that they are in such a way that they are knowing and loving and trusting God more and more to the point that their faith and understanding should be comparable to those who are teaching the word of God. And yet, he says, it's not. It's not at all. They continue to drink from the bottle when they should be cutting into a steak. He writes in verse 14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In essence, he's writing to those who are drinking milk and he's saying, this is who you should be, but you're not. It's a strong rebuke. And perhaps for some of us here this morning who are Christians, it's a rebuke that we need to hear. Now, what we're really going to be dealing with is what the writer of Hebrews says about the mature person having their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. But before we get there, I want to think about the goal. What is the point of this? What's the purpose of even thinking about Christian growth and the means by which we achieve it. Why is it not enough to simply become a Christian and just settle in as such? We're going to think in two areas, and then we'll consider the application. I want us to think about the means by which God brings about ordinary growth 
in the Christian life. And the first area of consideration this morning is our union with Christ. The Puritan John Flavel wrote, We are as able to stop the sun in its course or to make the rivers run backward as by our own skill and power to rule and order our hearts. We may as well be our own saviors as our own keepers. And yet Solomon speaks accurately enough when he says, keep your heart because the duty is ours, although the power is God's. A natural man has no power. A gracious man has some, though not enough. And whatever power he has depends on the invigorating and assisting strength of Christ. Grace within us is indebted to grace without us. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. When we become Christians, we are brought into everlasting union with Jesus Christ. And in our union with Christ, we are duty-bound to keep on believing and trusting and depending on Christ. And yet in that, we fully know that we are kept doing these things, in Flavel's words, by the invigorating and assisting assistance and strength of Christ. How is that so? Well, no longer being an enemy of God... I'm no longer at odds with him. I'm his friend. I'm united to Christ. I'm a child of God. Recall Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I live not in the flesh, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that instrumentality by which I I come into new life, faith in Christ is the very thing I now need to live day by day by day, having been crucified with Christ, and now I'm united to him, and I live a life that I cannot in my own live. I live a life that I must live, I'm commanded to live, but it is by the strength through the union that I have with Christ. In the book of Romans, Paul describes the first use of the law in driving us to our awareness of our sin. He says the law is a taskmaster and it came in to increase the trespass. But, he writes, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And now being the very wise realist that Paul was, he immediately asked his rhetorical question. He knew this was coming. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he responds, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? So you see the the emphasis of what Paul is saying is our identity We are those who are united to Christ because we've been saved. We are new creations in Christ. We are crucified to the world and the world to us. And so the world, as we grow as Christians, becomes less beautiful. It loses its sparkle in our eyes. And as we walk with Christ... 
the world begins to fade away and we no longer live for ourselves. We live for him who died for us and who rose again. So from all of this, Paul draws a conclusion in 2 Corinthians 5.17, and most of you are familiar with it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Another way to say that is if anyone is united to Christ, he is a new creation. A believer is united with Christ. A believer is a new creation. All of our spiritual life then must come from the Lord Jesus Christ. It flows from him to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to ask, how do we know if we have this union with Christ? It is by the fruit of our lives. It is by our lives being in grace-derived conformity to the character of Christ himself. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. To have a character and a life with, with these traits, these fruits, is sure evidence that we have union with Christ. And being inwardly transformed in his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. The Holy Spirit is not given to us primarily that we might have spiritual gifts. That is part of what the Holy Spirit does. But that is not primarily what he does. The main role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life is to create in us a likeness to Jesus Christ. Grace that comes through the Holy Spirit is above our gifts. Gifts can be counterfeited by Satan. But true love and faith and holiness, all the fruit of the Spirit, cannot be counterfeited. And so this is the evidence of union with Christ. And it begins not at our baptism, not at our entrance into church membership, but true spiritual life begins instantly when the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, we repent of our sin and believe on Christ and are born again of the water and the Spirit. And if we have true union with Christ, it is immovable, it is unwavering, it is everlasting. So if you and I are to get safely to heaven the greatest need that we have is to ensure, first and foremost, that we are united to Christ. To have his spirit truly in our souls is to be in the one and only place of safety. To be in Christ is to be in God the Father because he and the Son and, and because uh, he who has the Son also has the Father, and he who has the Father also has the Son. But we have to examine ourselves. If we are truly united to Christ as his people, we will have lives of holiness. We will have lives of godliness. This is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves The question we need to ask ourselves is, am I truly united to Christ in a living union? And if you are, you will have character like Christ's and a hope beyond this world. And in our union with Christ, we have this forward-looking expectation of ultimate joy in the life to come. 
as we are here, we are to watch and to pray. We are in a strange land as sojourners. But in the world to come, we have far beyond all our hearts could ever think or imagine. The person who is in Christ shudders at the way men of the world live for the things that cannot satisfy their souls. A writer named Maurice Roberts writes this, the life of worldly men seems to the godly like the first chapter of hell itself. No enjoyment of God, no holiness, no inward peace. Brothers and sisters, Christ has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation, and as his children, we are united to him. So perhaps you're beginning to gain an understanding of why the writer of Hebrews isn't saying, you know, I'm really sorry that you're not growing as a Christian. Maybe it's the church. Maybe the church isn't doing enough for you. Maybe you need a more dynamic experience. So let me hold your hand and carry you along. He's not saying that. He's really pressing home the point that as Christians, we cannot rest in mere acquaintance with the things of God. And if we're drinking milk, we should be moving on to eating solid food. And if we're not, we need to repent. Most often, people blame their lack of Christian growth on the church. And I'm sure you've all heard it before. Maybe you've even said it yourself. Well, I'm just not growing there anymore. And so it has become the 21st century excuse to find another church. Others will blame the means that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Well, I'm just not a reader. Or I just don't have time to pray. Or... I'm kept really busy at work, so getting involved in things like a small group or being in church every Sunday is just too much for my week. But you see, the issue isn't church. The issue isn't everyone else. The issue is a heart that hasn't taken hold of the fundamental reality of what it means to be a Christian united to Jesus Christ. We cannot be satisfied in any aspect of the Christian life until we are certain that we have laid hold of all of the riches that Christ has made available to us. Could any privilege in this world be any greater than while we were God's enemies, he loved us anyway, and he changed our hearts, and he changed our affections, and he's continually changing our minds, and he's giving us the faith to believe, and he's ushered us into everlasting union with Christ. Is there anything greater than that? Jesus prayed in John 17 for us, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Is there anything greater than the promise that we will forever be with Christ? As children of God, united with Christ, we will be forever with him. Should that not motivate us? to move beyond milk to solid food as quickly as we can, that we might know more of him, to live upon him more and more and upon ourselves less and less. When we recognize that we are united to Christ, and if you are a Christian, you are forever united to him, your union with him will not waver and it will not change. It's permanent. You are in Christ But there is another aspect 
of the Christian life that comes as a result of this union. And that is the second thing we're looking at this morning, our communion with God. Communion with God. And while uh, we're talking about the Christian life and the goal of all that we are striving for as Christians, communion with God really is the great reward. It is the end of all of the means that God has provided for us to grow as Christians. Having been made new creations in Christ, we now have the blessing of communing with our God. This is the fuel at the heart of Christianity that is experienced. It's a life lived in constant communion with our God. We're conscious of it. We're communing with our creator, our sustainer, and our friend. In John Owen's marvelous work, Communion with God, he writes this, What am I the better if I can dispute that Christ is God, but have no sense or sweetness in my heart from hence that he is a God in covenant with my soul? Do you have a sweetness of heart that God has covenanted with your soul? That's communion with God. Now, what's the difference between union with Christ and communion with God? Union is permanent. It is fixed. It is immovable so long as we are truly in Christ. Communion with God is variable. And this is really at the heart of what we're saying when we say, I'm not growing as a Christian. What we're really saying is, I'm lacking in my communion with God. It's weak. It's distant. Sometimes our communion with God is very sweet and it feels intense. And yet other times it may turn to where it feels flat. It feels distant and nearly non-existent. So a helpful way to understand this is for us to remember that our union with Christ is everlastingly fixed for those who've been redeemed by God. Communion with God refers to the degree of our felt enjoyment of Christ's love for us in this world. In the age to come, our communion will be everlasting and unhindered, and it will not waver. It will only get greater and greater. But in this life, it rises and it falls. Our joy in Christ is not always at its greatest heights. Has God's disposition toward us changed at all? No. Why then does it change? It's a failure of the affections of our hearts for God to be fixed on Him alone. It's because of indwelling sin, it's because of ongoing depravity. It's because of a lack of the use of the means that God has provided that we would have true communion with him. You know what I'm talking about. We've all been there. When I pray, it feels like it's going nowhere. I'm giving very little thought to God throughout the day. When I study the Bible, it's just merely out of academic exercise. Corporate worship is wearisome. Service in the church is, is routine, maybe undesirable or maybe even non-existent. Sin becomes easier. It comes with less guilt. We're just dry and dull and unfeeling. 
So Hebrews describes this is, this is not feasting on solid food. We're just trying to get by by sipping on a little milk from a bottle. We're not going to get very far. Now, God has provided for us very specific means that are necessary if we're going to have true and lasting communion with him. And when we don't utilize those means, there can be no expectation for communion with him. Just as I should not be able to expect to drive my car without gas, I should also not be able to expect to have communion with God without utilizing the means he's provided. I hope you get this. There are things which we call the ordinary means of grace. And I use that term often. I want to make sure we're all clear with what it is. The means of grace are those delivery systems that God has instituted to bring grace to his people. Spiritual power, spiritual change, help, fortitude, blessing. All of these things come by a specific means to needy souls on the earth. Grace comes from our Father, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, in conjunction with these specific means. So the means of grace are those conduits through which Christ alters and modifies and changes and transforms and develops souls on the earth. Here's another way to think about it. Through his perfect life and sinner's death, Christ acquired grace for us and distributes grace to us or in us. And in order to get that grace, God has ordained means by which it is distributed. The means of grace then are God's delivery system that the grace will come into our lives. So grace is the package and the means of grace are UPS or FedEx. So what are those means of grace then? What are the delivery systems by which God brings grace into the lives of his people? You'll often hear Christians talk about all sorts of things as means of grace. However, they've really only been understood as a very few specific things, namely the word of God, prayer, and the ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we're going to look at those ordinances next week. So this week I want to focus our attention on the word of God and prayer. Before I deal with them individually, I want to say this. It should not come as any surprise to anyone who's been here at Ephesus Church for any amount of time that we are an ordinary means congregation. We stress the gathering of the whole church on the Lord's day. It's because this is where the word of God is read. It is preached. It is sung. It is prayed with God's people on God's day, trusting that sinners will be born again by the living and abiding word of God. That faith that comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, God's people will be sanctified by the truth and sinners will come to new life. This is our primary number one focus as a local church, and God help us if we should ever stray from that. So when we're lacking in our communion with God, what do we do? I feel far from God. I feel weak in my Christian faith. Well, first, obviously, we must repent and consider that we're not probably utilizing the means of grace properly. 
10 out of 10 times, I've been a pastor for eight years now, 10 out of 10 times when I've talked to Christians over the last eight years who don't utilize the means of grace, they say, I'm not growing. Prayer, Bible intake through reading and hearing sermons, being present in corporate worship, when these things are neglected, 100% of the time, communion with God is lacking, and that person becomes distant from the body of Christ. They become bitter toward others. You know, I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the number one reason Christians leave biblical churches is because they individually lack communion with God. They place the blame on other things and on other people, but they're really lacking conscious communion with God. The other things that happens is as a result of, of communion with God is that they're pursuing more. God and his means that he's given to us just aren't enough, so I want more. So this is when you start to see people get slain in the spirit or have these healing crusades or they're trying to do all kinds of things through laser lights and fog shows and rock concerts and lest we get too self-righteous. We might also be seeking for more through biblical conferences or listening to biblically sound music in our cars, trying to always live a so-called radical Christian life. But when we stop and say, well, the Christian life really is pretty ordinary. It sort of looks like study your Bible, be a faithful spouse and parent and coworker. pray for my church, pray for my family, go to church every Sunday, Serve the body of Christ. Whoa, well, now all of a sudden I'm not growing. Why? Because maybe you're looking for an experience outside of the ordinary means that God has ordained to move us from milk to solid food. We don't get to invent those things which bring us into greater maturity. God has already ordained them and we must utilize them rightly if we are to find true, lasting growth. In 2 Peter 1, Peter writes of an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says it comes through a diligence to confirm your calling and election. Now, part of that is taking the necessary steps to keep ourselves in a felt sense of Christ's love for us. I wonder if you remind yourself every single day of your redemption in Christ Jesus. Do you have a conscious reminder every single day that God so loved you as his child that he gave his only begotten son that you should not perish but have everlasting life? Nothing in this world will stir our affections for Christ as much as a constant pursuit of being reminded that Jesus Christ actually loves us. And the second we take our hearts off of that reality, we will go searching for other lovers. So we have to find ourselves in regular repentance. We must constantly be reminding ourselves, all that Christ did, he did it for me. So how do I stay in that reality? In other words, how do I stay in communion with God? Two of the means of grace this morning. First, the word of God. God works in his people by the Holy Spirit. 
And I hope something you're tired of hearing me say is that the Holy Spirit never works apart from the Word of God, and the Word of God never works apart from the Holy Spirit. So the number one means by which we begin to partake of solid food that we might have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil is through God's word where the Holy Spirit is at work. And that takes on various forms. Studying and reading the Bible, those are certainly part of this and very important. But the primary means... The primary means that God has given for us to grow by the word of God is through its being preached. That means, by extension, that it is incredibly important that we are gathering with God's people on the Lord's Day for worship, to hear the preaching of the word. Our confession of faith emphasizes the preached word over every other means of grace. In fact, people tell me I struggle with reading my Bible on a daily basis on my own. And I will tell them, listen to sermons. Get some CDs or or download some sermons, whatever it is. But listen to good preaching throughout the week. And you don't need to feel guilty about doing that. You're not neglecting the word of God when you listen to it preached. It is a very important, the most important means of our intake of God's word day by day. The main means by which God brings sinners to salvation and grows Christians into greater maturity is through the preached word of God. It's God's appointed means of communicating the gospel. And so it is the most important means that we tend to each and every week if we are to grow in our communion with God. So that really should affect how we come to hear the preaching of the word, right? I presume that most of us take time for ourselves to be prepared for the next day of work during the week. Maybe we lay out our clothes, we are sure to go to bed at a decent hour, we make sure everything's ready to go so we're not late in the morning. Do we put that same amount of attention into preparing ourselves to hear the preached word of God, that we might have greater communion with God? Are we preparing ourselves the night before? Ensuring we're well-rested, we're able to focus our minds and our attention. Are we preparing our hearts to hear the word of God? Meditating on scriptures before we go to bed and when we wake up. Are we ensuring our Lord's day isn't, isn't rushed and, and hectic so we're able to come without having to first calm ourselves down so that we can hear the preaching? Brothers and sisters, the intention is not to give us a burden of works here. The point is to say, if we are to experience communion with God and growth is going to come, it is through our taking his means seriously, more seriously than we take being prepared for work each day or planning for a vacation or making our plans for the weekend. We should be most prepared of everything we prepare for during the week. We should be most prepared to come and gather with God's people on his day to worship and to hear the preaching of his word. It is that important. It is the power of God unto salvation. It must be valued just as much as we value our food. However, if this means of grace is neglected because we assume we have better ideas of what to do with our time, We will lack in our communion. We will grow cold. We will slowly wither and grow distant from the body of Christ. And it's not 
generally because of the church or because of other people. It's because of our own neglect. Well, the second means of grace that God uses that we might have greater communion with him is prayer. And this is by far probably the most difficult means of grace to tend to on a daily basis for most Christians. But we must be changed by prayer. And notice I say we must be changed. Prayer is not about changing God's mind or getting him to shift things on our side. It's about our hearts being brought into greater conformity with his. Is prayer a regular part of your Christian life? Prayers of thanksgiving and praise and adoration and and repentance and supplication. The Apostle Paul exhorts us to be constant in prayer, to pray without ceasing. And I think many Christians really don't believe that prayer does a whole lot of anything. However, it's when we pray that we begin to see all the more clearly what God is doing around us. Our spiritual eyes are opened up more and more. Our awareness of what he's up to begins to be heightened because we pray for things and then we see them come to pass. We're reminded that this is God's work. He's conforming us more and more into his image. He's growing us to make us more dependent on him, to trust in him, to have greater thankfulness as we look to him. Prayer is a very strange thing. I don't deny that, but it is a necessary thing. It is vital to lasting communion with God. Just like any other relationship you have, communication is important. Now, if we're all honest, we will admit the fact that our communion with God wavers. But we need to be convinced that more heavenly joy is available to us than we have ever thought or obtained in this life. Not through radical experiences, living life on the edge, but through some very ordinary means of growth. In his word, God has set before us the riches and the enjoyment of God that we have with our Savior in this life because we are united to him. Very quickly, before we go, I want to give us four things we hold on to. That our communion with God will be magnified. Instead of waiting for the next great Christian song to come out or the next great conference to attend or the next great experience to have, what can I do, what can I know right here and right now that I should continue utilizing the means of grace and find greater communion with God? I'm going to give us four things and we'll be done. Four riches from God's word to increase our communion with him through the ordinary means of grace. The first is this, peace. A Christian's peace is both objective and subjective. Christ has accomplished our salvation and it is the objective grounds for our peace. The penalty has been paid. I have been set free. That is an objective reality. Therefore, I am at peace with God. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that Christ himself is our peace. In Romans 5, he says we have been justified by faith, so we have peace with God. This is the objective reality of our peace. We're no longer enemies of God's. The subjective peace I have as a Christian is that I am given an inner peace of heart and mind. 
This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. When we are suffering, when we are grieving, when we are troubled, we can do all of this with a continual sense of peace. It comes from God. It surpasses all understanding. This is how we're able to grieve unlike those who are in the world. We have an inner felt peace and enjoyment of God that is ours in our communion with him. But it's made stronger or weaker based upon our efforts to lay hold of that peace through the means of grace. How are you preparing yourself to suffer? You ever thought of that? How am I preparing myself for one day when I go to see the doctor and he says, it's cancer? It will come in an instant when you are least expecting it. And if you're not constantly seeking to be in strong communion with God, when suffering comes, you will be unprepared and your sense of inner peace with God will waver. You will question him. But peace is ours to behold, to have, to live in as we utilize God's means of growth. Secondly, joy. The Christian's joy is a gladness of heart that is generated by the Holy Spirit in our reflection upon God himself. Is it not true of us as Christians that when we think about all that Christ has done, what he has secured for us, that we are filled with joy? Maybe you're like me. There's certain songs that we sing that just bring a greater sense of joy in Christ. Think of the words, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Or no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Or think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee, child of heaven. Canst thou repine? Or, oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This, the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. And that is absolute joy that fills our hearts as we think of these glorious truths and we sing them. Our joy in God is either strengthened or diminished by what we are pursuing in our consciousness as we are seeking communion with him. Communion with God results in heartfelt joy, and it only comes through the ordinary means of grace. Third is love. The love of God and our love for God and our communion with him. Again, passive and active. There is certainly no kind of love, if you think about it, that's not that way. Passively, we love Christ because he first loved us. But actively, he took upon himself flesh and accomplished our salvation in an act of pure love. We actively love Christ in return through our worship and service. When we are feeding on him through his word, in his word, when we're communing with him in prayer. 
And just as our joy increases as we reflect on him and his works, so too our love for him increases as we reflect on his work on our behalf. Lastly is hope. We have hope. Not hope in the sense of, I hope something will happen, but rather an assurance. Paul says in Romans 5, the hope of glory. As our communion with God grows sweeter, so too our hope in all that he has promised. Our God is a covenant-keeping God, so we are able to trust all that he has promised. Full assurance that he has promised All that will come to pass according to how he said it would. It's a sure thing that you and I, if we are in Christ Jesus, will have everlasting life with God. This is our hope. And so we have reason to live each and every day of our life to his glory because he is preparing a place for us when we run the race here and now. Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling as a Christian because you have a deep sense that you're not growing, I want to challenge you this morning. Your need is not a greater experience or different people or different forms of worship. The issue is probably that you're feeding on milk instead of solid food. You're not utilizing the means of grace that God has given you. How is your communion with God? If you're not utilizing the means of grace, don't expect growth just to happen. It won't just happen. We must use the gifts that God has given to us. If you're not a Christian, all of this probably sounds a bit strange to you. Growth, communion, what is all of this? Well, here's the thing. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is an abundance of mercy and grace and love. There is hope, there is peace, there is joy. But apart from Christ, there is no way for you to truly know what these things are. You might have spikes, spikes of happiness or joy or love or it seems to be these things. But they quickly perish. God has commanded you to repent of your sin, to believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, lest you perish in your sins. To cast all of your cares upon Jesus. To run to Christ that he would give you the very thing that your heart is desperately longing for but is seeking for in all of the wrong places. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And life with Christ is a life of everlasting communion with the one who created you, the one who loves you, and the one who gave himself for you. And so the call this morning for all of us is that we grow together for his glory, for our good, utilizing the means that he has provided that we might know him and love him all the more intimately. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your living word. We ask God that you would bless the preaching of your word as it has been heard, that it would rest fully in our hearts Lord, that we would be convicted of sin and brought to repentance, that we would be encouraged by the promises of your word, and that we, more than anything, as your children, would be reminded of the great love that you have for us and have proven to us in giving us your dear son, Jesus Christ. May we live with a full 
felt awareness of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished and the relationship that we've been brought into with our Father and with the Lord Jesus as a result. May we rest fully and completely in Christ alone. Lord, for those who are without Christ, may you awaken them from the dead and give them new life that you might be glorified in the salvation of their soul. We ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.